2: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. International travel finally gets off the ground as thousands of holidaymakers take to
1: the skies. Uh, Today we'll operate 66 flights. The same day in 2019, we operated 346. So the scale of the the challenge that lies ahead is, is pretty immense it is so-called freedom day
2: in england as the country sheds off the last of its restrictions but with cases skyrocketing even the self-isolating british prime minister is urging caution we
3: want this country to be able to enjoy the fruits of our massive efforts and of our enormous vaccination campaign
2: and it's been a warm warm few days for us all but on mainland europe they're picking up the pieces After devastating rainfall left hundreds dead, are we seeing climate change happen in real time? Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag, TonightVMTV. we begin tonight with the moment the tourism industry has been crying out for. International travel restrictions into and out of the country have eased, meaning more opportunities to take to the skies and more opportunities for the tourism sector to make some much-needed cash. Well, this was the scene at Dublin Airport as thousands of people headed away on holiday, but back home, there's still a worry about the Delta variant as cases top 1,000 once again. Well, joining me now is the man who got to travel to Marbella for work. Virgin Media reporter Paul Quinn is live in Spain. We're not jealous at all. Uh, Paul, tell us, uh, you headed off early this morning. How was your travel experience under the new system?
0: Yeah, look, Claire, I think I was probably a little bit apprehensive. I'd probably be a bit of an anxious flyer and, you know, that I'd I'd have everything in order. And with all the talk of EU digital uh, COVID certs and all of this, I was a little bit worried about what it was going to be like. And I'm one of the couple of hundred thousand people who still, despite being fully vaccinated, haven't actually got my digital COVID cert out in the post yet because my GP gave me my vaccine. So that was obviously playing on my mind. I'd been told that I could use the little cards that the GP had given me and that everything should be okay. So, yeah, we headed off. Uh, our flight was at six twenty-five this morning. we were at the airport just after four o'clock, in plenty of time. Everything checked in. Uh, there was a great buzz, great excitement at the airport. Like we've been covering stories there every week uh, for the last sixteen months about the pandemic, and it was strange to see. It was lovely to see so many people uh, going on their holidays, not but just not on their holidays, but meeting family and friends, people starting new jobs, uh, trying to get their lives back on track. But look, the whole airport process was pretty straightforward. There were some queues at uh, security, but obviously they went. uh, pretty quick, so we were lucky that we got through uh, security and everything was okay. Now, getting through to the departure gate then, that's when we were due to give our digital COVID cert and all that kind of documentation, but we weren't asked for it at all, and I think that really kind of threw a lot of us there. They did look for our passport, our boarding pass, and the locator form that you have to fill in when you're going to Spain, and that's something that we did have. So, we gave all that information, but there was no mention of a digital COVID cert, whether you were vaccinated or whether you'd recovered or not. Now, in hindsight, or afterwards Ryanair did follow up to say that that's what they look for, that they won't be looking, if you're going to Spain for example they won't be looking for the digital search, they'll be looking to show that you have the QR code from the locator form because to get that you have to show that you've either been vaccinated, recovered or have a negative test. But it's a lot of the confusion around that, I think that that's what people are worried about. I've been getting messages on Twitter from people throughout the day wondering, my mother is going to Spain next week, can she do this, can she do that how are we going back into Ireland? So still an awful lot of um, stuff I suppose to be figured out exactly how it's going to, all going to work but day one uh, yeah we were delighted to of course get this assignment and uh, it was a very surreal feeling being back on a plane and actually going somewhere Claire.
2: okay so you're in spain now it is a very popular destination usually for irish people are you seeing many irish people over there um in terms of crowds are people approaching the restrictions with caution
0: yeah, I think they are approaching with caution. You're going to have two types of people, the people that booked, the people, the 150 passengers that were on the plane uh, with us today, the, that pent-up demand who are just dying to get back on their holidays. And you're going to have the people who are just going to wait and watch and see exactly what, what happens in the next couple of weeks, how their friends or their family get on. There is definitely uh, some Irish here, probably not as many Irish as I thought there was going to be. There's a lot of people uh, milling around. You can probably see, of course, this time of the night in countries like Spain, this is when everybody comes out to have their dinner and to serve socialise but of course the restrictions have had an impact on that it's uh, just after 11 o'clock local time here so the bars the restaurants they all have to stop serving at 12 o'clock and their doors shut everyone gone by 1am so look it's certainly different but it's good to see people out and about and there's definitely Irish people here in Marbella tonight.
2: Okay Paul thanks for joining us live from Spain tonight. Now, it has been a big day for Dublin Airport and one they'll have been thinking of for well over a year. Siobhan O'Donnell is head of external communications at Dublin Airport Authority. I spoke to her a little earlier and asked her about how it felt to see passengers back.
4: Incredible happiness and a large dollop of emotion, it has to be said, going in there to the terminal building this morning and... Just seeing more passengers going through, it was lovely. As I said to many reporters, our eyes were dancing behind our masks. We were so delighted to see our customers coming back into the doors. It was just a really fabulous feeling throughout the terminals today. Just a very special day.
2: And while it was great news to see passengers back in the terminals and and getting on those flights, um, it was very different and much quieter than a usual Monday in high summer, wasn't it?
4: Absolutely. We had 22,500 passengers going through Dublin Airport today. Now, that's down 87% when compared to pre-COVID levels. So, if you take it that this exact day in 2019, we had 116,000 passengers arriving and departing. Um, on that day. So it's a huge drop. Um, Nonetheless, you know, it's it's great to see passengers coming through the doors. We're expecting a slow, steady and gradual increase in growth, not a surge. What we think will happen is that when people go to travel, it'll be word of mouth when they come back and tell their family and friends how their experience has been. It's very different for people. And, you know, there's a little bit of trepidation at the moment.
2: That's what I was going to ask you right now. What are you expecting in terms of growth in the coming weeks and indeed beyond that as we look to the autumn?
4: Well, we're expecting it to be slow, steady uh, growth over the next weeks and months. Um, Again, just people going on holidays, coming back and telling their family and friends. Um, ACI Europe, uh, the voice of airports across Europe, looks out to 500 airports in 53 countries. Um, has said it's predicting that passenger growth will not return to 2019 levels before 2024-2025. So it's going to take some time to get back there. However, today was a great start and passenger numbers will increase slowly and gradually over the coming weeks and months. And on a practical level, Siobhan, in
2: terms of how those COVID certs are working, was everyone happy with the way the system worked at the airport this morning? Or is there confusion about where and when you should present that cert?
4: It seemed to go very well today. It's a matter for the airlines. The digital COVID cert is presented at the boarding gate area on departure. And then again, on arrival back into the country, there are spot checks being done. Passengers, people haven't travelled to the airport for some time, so there's a lot to take in and to think about. And the physical layout of the airport is a little bit different insofar as there are a huge number of sanitizations uh, around the building. There are plexi screens everywhere. There are announcements constantly being made. There are over 12,000 pieces of signage with decals and hand-washing messages around the terminal buildings. There's also other regulations that are in place that haven't changed for, for instance those EU regulations concerning liquids that were introduced in 2006 about what you can carry through in hand luggage in terms of liquids under 100 mils people forget about those so they should check all those regulations there's a lot to take in you need to think about where you're traveling to the country you're going to what's required on arrival there and take it from there, and make your list, and plan in advance. And we get used to this. We will. We've done. We've gotten used to plenty of other regulations in the past, and we will get used to it. In terms of the challenge
2: ahead, uh, how soon do you think we'll get those flights going in and out? We've had, you know, flights cut because of the pandemic. Certain routes that people were used to gone. Do you think they'll come back?
4: something that we're working incredibly hard on at the moment it's very difficult it's a challenge um, we have had flights to, uh, just starting to dallas shanghai um, to tel aviv um, these are much sought after routes we work for many years to get these routes and we're in competition with many other airports and similarly we will be in competition with airports to regain what we've lost. We currently have 26 flights to 130 destinations currently, where we had 200 destinations. So there's a lot of ground to make up. And we'll be out there wooing airlines, but we need need help. We need help of the various agencies, of the government uh, departments, of tourism bodies and that. It's it's Ireland Inc. now um, ensuring that connectivity is restored, which is hugely important to the island of Ireland. Okay, Siobhan O'Donnell of the Dublin Airport Authority, thanks
2: for joining us tonight and best wishes uh, with the weeks and months ahead. Many thanks. Well, joining me to discuss all this is FINAFA Senator Timmy Dooley and Sinn Féin TD Darren O'Rourke. Uh, Timmy Dooley, 22,500 passengers expected to pass through Dublin Airport by the end of today. It is 50% up on the same day last week, but it's still over 87% down. On previous years, there's a lot of lost ground to make up, isn't there?
1: Yeah, it's only a small fraction of what you'd expect at this time of the year. But look, the aviation sector is resilient. Uh, 20 years ago, in the aftermath of 9-11, where there was very significant uh, shock to the aviation sector. Um, They consolidated their, their activities and they built back and they built back stronger. And I expect they'll be able to do that again. Difficulty this time is... Uh, it's been a very prolonged period uh, of being out. They've taken on enormous debt, uh, many of the large airlines to survive. So it's going to be difficult for them. And I think the best projections would seem to be, as Siobhan and others have identified, 2023, 24, 25, before we'll see the kind of activity that we had in 2019. It does put an encumbrance on the government um to work with airlines to provide the kind of financial supports not just to the airlines but to the airports to be able to attract in so far as possible as many of these routes uh, back into place some of them some of the routes will will see activity um in the coming weeks and months the routes where there's a lot of traffic but there was other areas where airlines had started to develop sort of niche markets um, they'll be slower to come back. I'm
2: just wondering, is there going to be a concerted approach now by government? Does the Department of Transport really need to step in here and show more support to airlines, to the DAA, to try and get those routes back, to try and get the numbers up to restore that confidence?
1: Yeah, that is going to take a very coordinated governmental approach. And it's not just to the DAA, it's, it has to be to all airports. Because what we can't see is that in the consolidation, that it's just Dublin gets the support. Cork, Shannon, in order to support the entire West and Midwest, they need significant supports as well. So the recovery uh, is really important. But what's even more important is that is that the recovery happens on an even and a fair and equitable basis so that all the sort of important access points receive support. You take Shannon Airport and the West of Ireland, so dependent uh, on, on uh, access points into the United States of America, that will need support. And it's not just... Irish originating airlines, support will have to be given to the airports to attract the US airlines because okay. the economy uh, outside of the, the East Coast right. is so dependent okay. on that uh, uh, that access.
2: Darna Work, would you agree with that? This is a very cha- challenging time for airlines and for the sector in general, but that the government is doing what it can and, and will look to the future and getting all those routes back up and running yeah. and getting people on planes again? Yeah,
3: well, it, it's, it's certainly a very challenging time and the past uh, 16, 18 months have been hugely challenging for, for that sector and for the, for the sectors that depend on, on aviation and for the regions that depend on aviation, I think... You heard it quite explicitly from the sector today, what they are looking for, for from government. They you said they want ministers on planes going out there, actively engaging, trying to, to get those routes back. They said that they want the full implementation of the Aviation Recovery Task Force. We're 12 months since we, we've, we've seen that report. I think, you know, it is key. Uh, it's consistently been said that Ireland... Are you Ireland...
2: happy with the government's support to date?
3: I'm not, to be be frank, and I think the the aviation sector themselves have have outlined a number of areas where where they felt the government was lacking and they pointed to individual ministers and individual departments that they felt could have gone a lot lot further. Um, I, I think what's really important at this stage is that the systems that are in place... Build work to build confidence in, uh, in in international travel that it can be yeah. done safely, and and I think that's the, the digital yeah. COVID cert plays a really important part in relation to On that. A
2: really practical level, just about that digital COVID cert. We know there are only 30 staff that were mani- manning that COVID call centre for people to ring up to organise their uh, COVID certs if they've had COVID and recovered from it. And that the centre was inundated and the calls weren't
1: taken. It, it, Surely
2: there should have been preparations in place for this.
1: It definitely was inundated because so was my constituency office today. I was I was there for a number of hours. Um, and what so clearly, there was. There's a Well, first of all, we have to try to get the information that they want and pass it on to the department. But what I've been told in contact with the department that they're building out capacity in that. Uh, so on starting that with line. thirty. Starting with thirty, and it's, it seems to be, in my view, should have been more. Not uh, there, there, no, uh, there, there, there was a, a sort of a line available last week. I understand it was relatively small uh, in, in, in activity, and uh, there needs to be a lot more. And I expect I've been assured that there will be in the coming days that that will be. Around
2: Okay, well, travel isn't the only big story in town today because COVID restrictions in England have come to an end. Joining me now is Professor of Public Health at the University of Bristol, Dr Gabriel Scalley. Uh, Dr Scally, you say the UK strategy is uniquely dangerous. Why so?
5: You've got to understand the position the UK is in at the moment. It is having a, a very definite new wave, another yet another wave of COVID. It has, today, it has the highest number of cases reported so far today in the world. And for some time now, it's had more cases in the UK than the whole of the rest of Western Europe put together. So it's in a really difficult place. Cases are not just going up around 40%, but so are hospital missions going around 40% per week and deaths 40% per week. Um, And we've now in the strange position of removing nearly all the restrictions that there are. I mm.
2: just wanted to ask you on that, because one of the defence of the UK government is, whether it's said explicitly or not, the idea is we reopen now so that we don't head into an autumn and a winter where we're getting huge cases in hospitals and a huge rise in infections then. The infections will naturally maybe be lower in summertime. It's a safer time to do this. If we can't do it now, when do we do it?
5: Well, they do promote this argument that it's right to go now and get the cases over with and get the hospital admissions over with and get the deaths over with. And that will make it easier for the winter months where they are expecting to have a lot of COVID cases, uh, hospital admissions and deaths. That basically is immoral and unethical to my point of view. I'm a doctor and I believe in preventing illness, delaying illness and and preventing and delaying death. So it's a very, very peculiar position. And I know it is being watched from around the world in horror. And uh, I mean, people are just amazed that the UK is taking these steps. But then that's been typical of their position throughout the pandemic. They, They haven't acted appropriately at the right time in the right way.
2: How worried are you about this reopening, giving rise to new variants, variants we haven't seen to date?
5: That's the big issue, isn't it? We're on to our third dominant variant now, and there's absolutely no reason to believe that the virus hasn't got more tricks in its box and that we won't see more variants. Now, to get variants arising, you need a lot of cases. And it's not by accident, perhaps, that the, uh, one of, uh, the second big variant that we had, the one that originated, first identified in Kent, was first identified in the UK and quite possibly arose there because the UK, if it has an awful lot of cases, it will generate variants and maybe one of them will do the trick of combining both being very infectious and being able to dodge the immunity granted by some of the vaccines. And that is the the possibility of that is being increased by the fact that this huge surge of cases is taking place when a significant proportion, but not a hugely high proportion yet of the population are vaccinated. And we know that gives the variants Mm. that may perhaps dodge the immunity from the vaccine Mm. a bit of a head start, a competitive advantage in that evolutionary race to produce the next successful variant. So it is a big worry. And we also know very well that having two vaccinations doesn't guarantee that you won't get infected and you won't get sick.
2: Uh, does it guarantee, though, that you wouldn't get as ill? You're not as likely to see high hospital cases in people who are double vaxed. They may get the variant, they may be ill at home, but they're not likely to go to hospital as you would see in, in, in the cases of people who are unvaccinated when you look at 68% of the UK population now double vaccinated.
5: Oh, well, that's certainly true. If you are double vaccinated with the variant we have at the moment, uh, you have a very small, but there is still a small chance of ending up in hospital seriously Ill, and a smaller chance again of dying. And that, that has definitely been reduced against uh, the current variant. The problem is, if you have a lot of people who have not a large risk, but a small risk, but if you have a lot of people who are falling ill, as they are at the moment in the UK, are uh, catching the virus, A lot of people exposed to even a small risk still results in cases. And that's why the hospital admissions are going up 40% a week and the deaths are going up 40% a week. And there's no sign of that tailing off yet. I'm sure the government hopes it will in the next period of time. But there is nothing to indicate that it's going to happen yet.
2: And Gabriel, finally, would you have concerns that we'll see a similar explosion in the north um, if they look to ease restrictions there as we're seeing in England now?
5: I think any part of the UK is likely to have the same. The North has sort of lagged behind uh, the rest of the UK. But uh, if they took away all the restrictions, uh, that would certainly spur the growth in cases. But more importantly, what the UK is not doing is they're not acting to prevent uh, the, the COVID-19 spread. They're not improving ventilation in workplaces, in in schools, in, in factories, uh, in retail premises to, to, to prevent staff as much as anyone else from getting infected. And And uh, they are relaxing the rules about the compulsory wearing of masks. And we haven't yet in the UK upgraded the mask wearing. Those cloth, uh, sometimes homemade cloth masks were for droplet spread. Now, we know the virus spreads not by droplet spread, but through the air. And we really should be wearing, as many European countries uh, mandate you to wear on public transport, wear proper masks, proper FFP2 or FFP3 masks. So all that preventative stuff just simply isn't being done. It's an amazing situation.
2: Okay, Gabriel Scully. Thank you for joining us with that tonight. Uh, Timmy Pleasure. and Darren will be staying with us for more reaction to what we've just heard. Stay with us.
4: Ready to pop the question?
2: Well, as we mentioned earlier Covid restrictions in England have come to an end there are now no limits on how many people can meet or attend events and face coverings are no longer required by law The moment dubbed by some as Freedom Day isn't exactly a celebration. Cases are still in the tens of thousands daily. And even the British Prime Minister is self-isolating after his health secretary tested positive. Here is what Boris Johnson had to say
4: earlier.
3: We want this country to be able to enjoy the fruits of our massive efforts and of our enormous vaccination campaign. But to do that, we must remain Cautious. Though both deaths and hospitalizations, as I say, are sadly rising, these numbers are well within the margins of what our scientists predicted at the outset of the roadmap.
2: Well, joining me again is Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley and Sinn Féin TD Darren O'Rourke. And uh, when you hear Boris Johnson saying, you know, we were sort of prepared for these figures... And we are proceeding now with caution. We are reopening the country. Um, are there alarm bells over here? What's happening in England?
1: Yeah, well, he says he's proceeding with caution, but yet all the restrictions have been effectively uh, dissolved. So that, that suggests an entire reopening. I suspect the British people, though, um, will be ahead of Boris Johnson on this, as they have been on other issues. Um, I think talking to friends of mine there, they are going to continue to observe... Some of the rules that were, were were there previously in terms of the wearing of masks, staying out of uh, densely crowded areas. It does seem bizarre that nightclubs are opening. I think there are very few locations throughout Europe that have lifted restrictions to that extent. Until such time as I mean, Gabriel Scally would be far. More versed in this, but there is a belief that until you get to about 80% vaccinated, that you shouldn't be removing all the basic restrictions, um, and that's obviously what and we're doing not far here. We're
2: off with 68%.
1: No, and I think that's that has been the challenge for all politicians, particularly here over the last number of weeks. You're so close. The vaccine is rolling out really well, particularly in Ireland. We've we've really gotten ahead of of, of others in Europe, and we're doing doing really well with it. And that brings on a demand from the public to to, to open up maybe a little bit quicker, but I think we're right to do so in, in a careful and a controlled way. And I think the approach being taken hopefully next week of allowing indoor dining uh, in, in yeah. pubs and restaurants to get back, but yet with some restrictions, with some spacings um, and only for those that are vaccinated.
2: Okay, uh, Darren O'Rourke, we do have cases that we heard from the North today, 1,700 cases. Mm. It's, they're going up hugely there. They've had indoor dining uh, reopened for a matter of weeks. Mm. And people have been enjoying the reopened hospitality sector. Are you worried about uh, the spillover and the impact on figures there could have... On, on here and, yeah, on, on and I, how we're doing.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think Michelle O'Neill was out earlier today and said, I think there's another round of, of uh, relaxation scheduled for the 29th, and um, there's no guarantee that is that, that, that will happen. Prece- there's no guarantee that it will proceed based on, I, I suppose, like everything, uh, the information that's been generated on a daily basis, uh, based on, on on what's happening and the impact of of earlier relaxations. I think it it is a you know um uh, like the the english strategy boris johnson strategy is is a reckless one um i think if you look at the Reaction and the response from the international public health community—I think that tells a tale in itself. Yeah. I looked at uh, public health officials from New Zealand who said we always look to Britain, we always looked to to England, and we just find it incredible the approach that's been taken there. So uh, it is very reckless, and I think yeah. you know we we would do well to to uh, uh, you know to heed that international. And uh, look uh, at advice. the cases
2: that we're seeing here, though 1,017 new cases today, 101 people. In in hospital it's gone over the 100 mark um, and we can expect to see that number rise can't we so we say about what's happening in the uk and cases skyrocketing but is it only a matter of weeks before we see the cases grow as as neffet has has predicted
1: yes and that's why we took neffet's neffet's advice in relation to the opening up in a phased way of the indoor dining and i'm interested to hear what darren has said not being critical of him but Sinn fein last week in the dal voted with the rural Independence. Uh, to open up uh, indoor dining to those that were unvaccinated, well, that, well, wouldn't actually, have been, that wouldn't well, have been the right well, thing actually, to do. The argument that being made case. is
2: indoor dining is being opened to the unvaccinated because when you have families going in, you have parents and bringing unvaccinated children in. The people working there are unvaccinated.
1: Yeah, the but, idea but I mean, that
2: we are solely opening to those who are vaccinated simply isn't the case. Yeah, but, but
1: the advice was taken from Neffet and we're following that advice. And that's well, the right thing really to now do. When Tony Hulhan well, said we
2: don't, we don't want to see kids going into restaurants.
1: Prefer not to. But the reality is that if parents are away on holidays and they have a couple of small children, they're not going to leave them outside on the side of the street. So you have to be practical about all of these measures. It's not about bringing in 18 and 19 year olds that aren't vaccinated. I think vaccinated. is
2: impractical in that regard.
1: No, I think they gave advice and it's you know, it's for them to give the best public health advice, but but, but, the, but it's also for the government to do what's right. And I think, as Darren has rightly identified, we've got to take that public health advice. We've got to respond in a proportionate way, which is what we're doing. And I think the approach that has been taken by the government is the right one. I think it was reckless uh, of what the rural independents were suggesting to open up for all unvaccinated. And I was disappointed that oh, some Sinn Fein populism jumped on the bandwagon no, of that. I, I, and I know I, it's I, not where Darren stands on it, and it's not where most of the Sinn Fein members stand, but when it goes Back to Sinn Fein Central, we get another variation in the policy. There are more variations it. of Sinn Fein policy on this particular issue than there are of COVID that for a 19. Where I don't think so. I, don't, this push I don't.
2: to proceed with, with caution. And the, the vote that was taken, or that your, your disagreement, in fact, with pushing ahead with indoor dining for vaccinated yeah. people only.
3: No, no, I think, I think, the, I think the point in, in relation to all of it is that uh, Timmy is saying that uh, they've listened to Neffet and that this is a, a cautious and mm. the practically sensible way to... The, the truth of it is the rubber hasn't hit the road in relation to this. Um, uh, our deep concern is that it won't be implemented. It, it's, in fact, it's unimplementable, it's unworkable. And if you look at... For example, we heard at the Transport Committee last week, one of the tools they were talking about using was the digital COVID cert. And in fact, it will be impossible to use the digital COVID cert for indoor down because they won't have the verifier app in, and the, in, the, in cons- the hospitality I know sector. I the concerns
2: are there around planning and preparation and whether the, the, the COVID cert will work for people to go into restaurants, but what would Sinn Féin do now?
3: Yeah, so, so, Regarding
2: so, the, the reopening of indoor dining.
3: Yes, yeah, so so I think the important part in relation to it, and obviously we would have advice from Nefit that we don't have at the minute in, in terms of our position uh, from opposition. Well, our we position, know
2: what NEFIT's advice is. Unless you're vaccinated, don't dine indoors.
3: Yes, yeah, so so, so the, the part we're not aware of and we don't know is the extent to which uh, the use of PCR the extent to which antigen testing may they be used as an option. I don't
2: want any of that, and the no, government has gone I, with I, an effort on that, saying, no, we'll leave antigen testing for a while. But, but, but,
3: but, uh, but I'm not convinced the extent to which. And we have heard from a range of, of experts from you know Ireland and internationally that say there is a role, a potential role there for antigen testing. And we've heard it literally day in and day out at, at the, the transport committee. Our, our point in relation to is that the system that has been proposed is unworkable and unimplementable. And we believe if you look at variables like the PCR, like antigen testing, like additional ventilation, that there may be a combination there that is a far better fit and more workable, okay, more and implementable week out from and more reopening, successful.
2: Should restaurants and bars reopen?
3: Well, again, like we, have, we have deep concerns with the, with the proposal that is okay. there. So no. Well, I, I I can't say it any other way other than we have like we voted last week last week the way we did because we don't have confidence that the system that has been proposed is going to going to work and is going to be on, is going to be implemented. Are you worried and that you're
2: going to see we're going to see an explosion in numbers in covid cases?
3: Well, well the, 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 uh, absolutely but the the proposal is there and has been presented as the safest way to do it. I personally don't can't, don't understand how that system is going to work on a practical basis. You think of you know urban and rural uh, pubs. If you look at r- pubs and restaurants uh, a- across the country, I just don't understand. And and and, and fairness to them, they have said themselves. You know, they are not entirely sure how this system yeah. is going to work. And and, and okay. you know, I, I think on a practical level, people who have frequented those okay. those places will, will, will say the same, you know, in terms of, know, of how it's going and to work. I know
2: the government have teed up the, the, the teething problems we're likely to see, but it could be pretty chaotic, couldn't it?
1: Well, it's going to be difficult. There's no doubt about that. But I mean, what Sinn Féin want to do is ride the other two horses in the race so that they're covered. You know, on on one hand, they say we wouldn't open, the other saying we would open. Like the the reality is that they voted last week to support uh, unvaccinated people entering pubs. Uh, And now they're saying, well, we don't know. Maybe we'd have done something else uh, if we had more information. All the information is out there. No matter what the government did, it was going to be difficult. Um, You had to get the the, the sector back up and running. You had to accept that an awful lot of people are vaccinated and they expect uh, you know, they expect to be able to move around freely um, and 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 the difficulty the government had is you 've got to get to a point where more people are vaccinated so opening up in a controlled uh, way i think was a proportionate response, recognizing that within another month. With- there'll be a large cohort of the Irish people will be vaccinated and the restrictions that remain right. will be able to be established. I, I, I want not to not ask controlled. you about what
2: Dr Gabriel Scaly was saying. Look, the other tools at play and they're not thinking about them in the UK is things like ventilation, that it's key to everything. Mm. This is an airborne disease, but we're not seeing increased ventilation in workplaces and in schools and in the retail sector where we should be seeing it in order to cut down on infection levels. And we're not planning it here either, are we?
1: I think there is certainly some... Uh, a lot of what's companies happening? that I know are trying to get people back to work in the autumn. They're looking towards the autumn and yeah, they are looking at ventilation. In terms
2: of in terms of legal standards on, in ventilation?
1: Well, I mean, I, I know that if you look at what has been done in relation to the testing in advance, the rollout of antigen testing, that that has been recognised as a really important part of yeah, getting no, people that's back to work. Testing,
2: and that's a yeah. separate thing. I'm talking well, even opening restaurants next week and you have a case where you're asking restaurants themselves to monitor their CO2 levels but there's nothing in place well, becomes, to help those restaurants the, to help those bars in ensuring support, that it's a safe environment for staff
1: and for diners. Very considerable support has been provided to the restaurant sector and i think if you if you do talk and i'm sure you do to people within the industry they do believe that the government has provided very significant supports to assist them uh, in having their premises yeah, uh, fit to, for, for purpose for outdoor, well, for outdoor dining and for indoor mm. so there's been very uh, significant supports that have been provided. Reality is, I think you're looking at September as a point where we'll have reached such a critical point in relation to the vaccination uh, that that much of the hurdles will be crossed. The issue is to get there and people do need to exercise a great amount of caution between here and then. Would you have that confidence
2: around September being... Of uh, the month that it all comes together look, and we're in a safer course, place. Of
3: course, we want a, a, you know, a significant, uh, successful uh, rollout of the of the vaccine. That's that's the the key to to all of this. But the fact of the matter in relation to this is that. There has been. This is 11th hour uh, preparations that we've had here. Um, you know, we've been talking about ventilation for the guts of a year. At this stage, we've seen very little progress in relation to it. Antigen testing the same. You, you know, it, this is a cobbled together um, a system that uh, I fundamentally believe is unimplementable. And, but, and you know, I, I you know, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I, I think. You know, the experience it, to date uh, uh, leads me to wonder.
1: If, if I could, there, there tends to be this narrative out there that the government uh, are, are making it up as they go along. I mean, the reality is this virus... And you're not. No, no. The reality is, the virus changes on a week by week basis. I know. Tony Holohan and the advice he gave a number of everyone months Everyone has
2: ago. talked about the fact that even but, by giving that July fifth tentative reopening date, plans could have been made. But you around have to respond all the time. I mean, this telling hotels about look, or um, and restaurants about let, let's look at, at having people vaccinated first. Let's look at key areas like ventilation. Let's roll out that antigen testing.
1: But, neither antigen nor nor, nor ventilation is the solution to this problem. They're short-term measures that have some scope. Reality is the the big issue is to get people vaccinated and then it's to respond appropriately depending on a variant. And the Delta variant was not uh, expected in the way that had transpired. Uh, The Neffert Advice Three weeks ago was very different to what it was two weeks ago. And rightly so, it has to change, and the government have to respond. OK, we'll have to have to leave it
2: there. Lots more after this break. We'll be discussing the unseasonably warm weather and the factors behind it. I'm sure you've noticed it's uncharacteristically warm right now. Ireland sizzled over the weekend with temperatures in the north reaching the highest ever recorded and here Met Aaron has issued a high temperature advisory with uh, temperatures set to continue in highs of 29 degrees expected uh, up until Friday. On mainland Europe though, it's a very different story. Nearly 200 people have died after floods ripped through towns in western Germany and Belgium. The aftermath as you can see, is devastating there. So are we seeing climate change happening before our eyes? Well, joining me via Skype is Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather. And with me in studio is Dr. Cara Augustenborg, an Environmental Policy Fellow at UCD. I want to come to you first, Alan, a hot spell. Can it be characterized right now as a heat wave?
6: It will be by tomorrow Claire. so we'll have the fifth consecutive day of temperatures over 25 degrees tomorrow which will make it an official heat wave for Ireland. Um, so it will be a heat wave and it will continue then as well for another few days.
2: And have we, was this expected or did this kind of come as a surprise, the high from the Azores um, when you were looking ahead to see what weather we were going to have come July, were we expecting it to be this warm?
6: Yeah, there was some signals that high pressure was going to build and the Azores High was going to move up over us from around the 13th of the month. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, it has come a little bit, I suppose, further and it is lasting a little bit longer than maybe than we had it thought. So it is going to get warmer and warmer. So it we could actually see temperatures now reach 32 degrees locally um, on Wednesday, even 30, 31 degrees tomorrow. So a little bit hotter maybe than had been forecast. But in fairness, the weather models did pick up on the general Team pretty well.
2: Okay, thanks for the warning on that. Um, Have we seen though more record temperatures in recent years than ever before, Alan?
6: No, a lot of our high temperature records actually date back. Um, the highest ever of 33.3 degrees actually dates back to 1887. But more recently, 2006 was the hottest ever July temperature of 32.3 degrees. And then, of course, 1995, many people might remember, was an exceptionally warm summer. And we saw temperatures in excess of 30 degrees for a for, prolonged period, along with very little rainfall. So we, we, we haven't broken really any all-time records for high temperatures in recent years, but we are going to get close to it um, in the coming days, that's for sure.
2: Okay. Um, Cara, we do love this weather generally, well, most of us do at least, but could it be cause for greater concern?
7: Yeah, I think you know it's lovely that we can enjoy the beaches a bit this week. But when we start looking at water shortages and and water supply issues, as we're seeing now in North County Dublin, when we start seeing our farmers struggling to grow crops or feed their livestock, as we saw in the 2018 drought, then it really is cause for concern. And certainly, what we're seeing all over the world this year is records being broken left, right, and center. So we had the heat dome uh, across the Arctic, all the way down to California. We had record heat in Canada at temperatures that we. Would normally expect in places like Dubai, you know, r- temperatures that are higher than anything recorded in Las Vegas so far north. And we had 150 people die in British Columbia alone as a result of that. And then at the same time, we're seeing extreme weather on the other side with the flooding in Germany. So I think what climate change is showing us is that we will have record-breaking issues all over, uh, in both directions,
2: both extreme heat and extreme flooding and storms. How many as yet link specific weather events to climate change?
7: Yeah, scientists work on this as soon as an extreme weather event breaks. So right now they are working on what they call attribution studies on the heat dome in the... In the northwest and the northern hemisphere and also on the flooding in Germany but it takes a few weeks to process that data but what they are saying is that these events are 150 to 600 times more likely as a result of the greenhouse gas emissions from human activity so I think this is all in line with the projections that we could expect to see and I wouldn't be surprised if very soon they come out with a direct attribution for these events.
2: Okay Alan I want to ask you about the the pictures that we're seeing from Germany and parts of Belgium as well that deluge of rain, two months worth of rainfall in a matter of days. It's not normal, is it?
6: No, certainly not. Some stations saw up to 180 millimeters of rain in the space of 72 hours. I mean, they saw more rainfall in 24 hours than they'd often see in a month. So those type of rainfall events, unfortunately, will cause issues. But they also had had a wet period building up to that. So the ground was already saturated. So that that on top of that then really became a perfect storm. And these issues then, I mean, the, the images are just unbelievable, really, that type of rainfall. Now, there was some weather warnings issued from the European Centre for Forecasting, and, and I'm not sure, maybe the weather warning system needs to be looked at throughout Europe, because it's it's not really, I suppose, in line, each country has its own system, and as we become more aware of these type of, I suppose, scenarios, we need to be able to warn people about them. I mean, there's only so much you can do, but it, really and truly looking at a rainfall event and that, you need to look at the, the ground situation as well, because forecasting, just what's going to come, and not taking into account what's already happened in the previous weeks really does make an issue for for the general public trying to follow the yeah, forecast.
2: And can weather change that, uh, that quickly from one extreme to another for example can we see flash floods here in Ireland um, you know we get extreme temperature one month are you likely to see or is that a possibility that we could see that down the line?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you take even this week, we're looking at um, a cut off low pressure system coming in from the south. Now, it looks like on Friday and Saturday, it's going to stay south of Ireland, and we'll miss a lot of the rainfall. But there's a lot of rainfall forecast for England and Wales um, over the weekend and early next week. So you can go from one extreme to the other. And, you know, we've seen where we had a very dry April, very dry um, spring April. And then May was really, really wet and then dry again in June. So while our rainfall average for the year is actually about normal, we've we've not seen it in a consistent pattern. We're seeing dry spells and then we're seeing very Mm -hmm. wet spells.
2: Is there a question then, Cara, about infrastructure that we have in place for such extreme weather, if we're likely to see more of it in the decades to come, that we have the infrastructure in place? For example, we're not necessarily used to temperatures hitting 30, 31, 32 degrees in this country. Could we be better prepared for it? Yeah,
7: I think the example Alan used about Germany, I mean, the German officials were saying they have state-of-the-art warning systems, they are a very wealthy and developed country, and they never expected a storm like this. This is a one-in-1,000-year event. That they, that they just never anticipated and never planned for. And all of our infrastructure is designed to work in a very narrow temperature envelope. So, for example, the streetcars in Portland had to shut down because their electrical cables started to melt in the heat. We look at our dart line in Ireland and sea level rise happening and erosion happening on the East Coast at a, at a very significant rate, and we should be having a conversation about whether or not we need to move that dart line or raise it uh, and what we need to do about our infrastructure to adapt to what is inevitable climate change even if we reduce our emissions significantly and stay below two degrees of warming.
2: Okay, so those conversations you believe need to happen. Now, people might think that's kind of an extreme move to talk about, potentially moving dark lines because of rising sea levels and the impact that would have. But you think that's something that we need to actively discuss? Yeah, now. I mean, sea level rise, extreme weather is happening. It's happening
7: more often. We need to have the hard conversations about how we prepare to it, for it. But in addition to rapidly reducing our greenhouse gas emissions so that we actually do try and address the worst of climate change and try and stop ourselves from going to something like five degrees of warming for example
2: okay and alan when this heat presents itself as it has um this week um what sort of challenges come with it and and how should we sort of prepare for it i mean we're we're seeing very warm nights we are seeing um more elderly people maybe in a vulnerable position here as well aren't we
6: Absolutely, Claire. And the warm nights is probably one of the aspects of it that we're not really built for or used to. We don't have air conditioning. Um, there's a shortage of fans if you've gone to try and buy a fan even. And it, it is going to get warmer and warmer over the coming days. So temperatures at nighttime are really not going to get below 16, 17 degrees, maybe even 18 degrees. Like I just checked, it's still 23 degrees in some stations at this hour of the night. So trying to stay cool, there's very little air. It's getting humid at nighttime. So even opening windows, there's very little kind of draft moving so it's about trying to make sure that those people who can't I suppose cool themselves have somebody to look after them and the same goes for pets because very little cloud cover the last few days and that'll be the same again so very little shade you need to make sure that people can find shade and I suppose you know water and all those kind of general things but it's the warm nights that unfortunately can cause some real issues for people that have heart conditions and the elderly.
2: And we're talking about the weather being good up until Friday. Do you predict that it will change then or do you think that the the good spell will continue um, even heading into August?
6: Yeah, it does look like it'll break down a little bit, but not much rainfall really expected. The east of the country could see temperatures cooling back a little bit for Saturday and maybe Sunday, but we could still be looking at some areas seeing 23, 24 degrees. Um, We might just see a few showers in some areas over the weekend and then Monday and Tuesday the same after that it's very uncertain unfortunately the weather models are struggling with another potential for a cut off low which could bring some you know some heavy rain which the farmers will be glad of at times but um, very hard to forecast so you know we might we might see kind of a small blip before high pressure builds back again um, and it's very hard to say what's going to happen after that Claire.
2: Okay I'll know Riley thanks for that and Dr Cara Augustenberg thank you for joining me in studio and that is it from us our programme is available as a podcast and our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow. Tomorrow morning from all the late team here. Good night, take care.
0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.